we're going to go into the great hope of the church, which is the book of Thessalonians. And unless you had the hope of the return of Christ, there are just so many things in life wouldn't be worth doing. So many things you just never do if you didn't have the hope of the return. It's the hope of the return that makes it possible for men and women of God to go on in spite of the environment and situations and in spite of the negative spiritual battles. It's the hope. Where is that record in Corinthians where Paul says, it's not expedient for me to doubt to glory, 2 Corinthians 12. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ over 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God know it. That does not mean he was on a dope trip. It doesn't mean he was out of his senses head. Such an one caught up or caught away to the third heaven. And the third heaven is the new heaven and the new earth. The return of Christ is included in that. And I knew such a man, how that he was caught away into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I'll not glory, but in mine infirmity. It wasn't lawful, as it says here, lawful, it wasn't permissible for him to speak this. And he's talking about the paradise, which is in the hope of the return of Christ. Here was Paul having this great revelation, and yet he couldn't speak it. He wasn't allowed to share it. Why? <laughs> because God had John to share it much later, perhaps around 90 AD that the book of Revelation was done, the Paradise Record. Why would God show all of this to Paul and then not allow him to speak it at all. And the answer is in the hope. The greatness of the hope had not been made known, you know, in writing, yet God showed it to individuals. And that's why Paul could keep going. That's why Paul could continue to be positive in very unusual situations that appeared to be negative. That's why he could say, regarding the messenger of Satan to buffet me, this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Where is that record about he being beaten? Verse 24 of the 11th chapter. See, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. That means five times they beat him with a whip. The end of the thongs would have bones or little pieces of metal. And each time they whipped him, they gave him 39 lashes with it. Five times 40 is 200 minus five. 195 lashes across the back. I want to tell you that man couldn't have won a beauty contest 
You see, this most far-fetched for people. They look upon men like Paul as being holy men of God that, you know, you could whip them to death and you still wouldn't see nothing. They were just human beings like you are. Put yourself in that place. 195 lashes with a whip that had bones or metal pieces an inch to inch and a half long at the end. And those metal pieces were not smooth and round. They were made to cut across Paul's back, his buttocks down across his back of his thighs, wherever they just happened to hit him. 195 times. And he never copped out on God. He never denied the reality of the greatness of the word, the mystery. He never denied the love of God. And he was no better man human-wise than any man or woman seated in here. A beautiful human being just like you are, just like I am. A boy, you see, he stood. Well, what made it possible for that man to stand? His absolute unalterable conviction and belief in the truth of what God was doing and showing him. The hope of the return of Christ. Five times. Three times he was beaten with a rod. The rods were something, the best way I can describe them is if you thought of using, what do you use in plumbing, that good stuff? Copper. A copper rod, about a half inch thick, and that's what they laid it on. They'd just curve around their backs when they hit them. That's the rod. Once they stoned him. Oh, yeah, really something, isn't it? This is why any man or any woman that walks for God has to stay in alignment and harmony with God and have the greatness of the hope of the return of Christ or you can't stand the spiritual pressure. All through the past centuries, the adversary has defeated people because they did not continue to have that hope. They didn't walk in alignment and harmony. And so they'd sell out to what you and I know as religion. It looks so kosher. It looks so religious. They fold their hands at the right place, sit down at the right place, stand up at the right time, count their beads at the right time, go to prayer meeting at the right time. It's just a counterfeit. It's religion. It's the hope of the return and the greatness of that that has to live. In your life and in mine, if we're going to move, the word that God has made us responsible for. Why did Paul receive this revelation and yet wasn't allowed to speak it? Because any man or woman walking with the Father in the great spiritual depth and truth of his word will have to have revelation. God will give it to you because there are just times when you must know what's going on. You will know. He was not allowed to speak it. He never told anybody. God showed it to him, and then God said, shut up. That's exactly what God did. He said, I'm showing you this, but this is your baby. Keep your stupid mouth shut. And that's why he showed it to him, so that Paul knew what some of the things in the future would be so that he could walk dynamically in the present and just stay put on God's word. And God doesn't give revelation when you're out of alignment and harmony. When you play the fool, 
when you play religion, all that stuff, you're not going to have revelation from the true God, I guarantee you. Be from the adversary. Get any, and he does give revelation. So the greatness of this book of Thessalonians, I guarantee you, is further bigger than I am able to comprehend. Yet I believe by God's mercy and grace, we may be able to handle some sections with comprehension, but my prayer is we'll be able to handle at least all of it with apprehension so we can get into it. I wanted to give you a detailed background of the book, which I've not had sufficient time to really correlate, but I will share this with you upon the first occasion when I have that opportunity. But I know that this book of Thessalonians stands last in all the texts that are in extent. As a matter of fact, all the church epistles appear in the same order in all the texts. This is not true of the Gospels. It's not true of the rest of the epistles. But these church epistles addressed to the body of believers specifically, starting with Romans, then Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, these seven books always stand in that order. And Thessalonians is always last, but it was written first. And I believe it was written not later than 52 A.D. It could have been written as early as 50. Before anything is written, basically, you know, it isn't an ironclad law by revelation, but generally speaking, before something is written, it is first taught. The men of God of the Old Testament as well as the New, usually shared the truth with one or two or larger groups of people before it was written. In this particular epistle, I believe that Silas and Timothy were the ones to whom Paul talked, to whom he shared, and to with whom he discussed the revelation regarding this truth or these truths that are in Thessalonians. Then sometime after that, and I said I do not believe later than 52 AD, around 50 AD, maybe, it was put in writing. And then, of course, it has come down to us as the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Thessalonians. That title at the top is man's edition. It's inaccurate. It is not Paul the Apostle epistle. It is not the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Thessalonians. It is the epistle of God to the Thessalonians. Paul was just the writer. God is the author. It stands last among the church epistles because it's the last thing that's going to happen to you, to me, to the body of believers. It's the last thing that's going to happen. But it's the first thing you have to put into your spiritual understanding and believing if you're going to minister the greatness of God's word. If you're going to believe the doctrine of Romans 
and the doctrine of Ephesians, then you must by all means understand the gathering together, which is called the parousa, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for his church. And the appearing, or the parousa, the coming of the Lord, the second coming is one great massive truth with two different segments to it. In the first coming, there were two major segments. One was that he was born in Bethlehem. The second, that he came to Jerusalem where he died. And God raised him. In the second return, it also has two phases. The beginning and the ending of it. The beginning is the gathering together of the body of believers. The church of the body to which you and I belong. The ending is the resurrection and the judgments to Israel. Thessalonians is the first record of that return. The book of Revelation is the latter. You see, the reason I want you to see the title and you understand this because the word of God was not man, didn't come by men. Remember? And so it, it's not Paul's epistle. You understand? Can't be. It has to be God's epistle. It's God's word. Holy men of God spake as they were moved. For no prophecy is of any private interpretation holy man of god spake knowing this first remember it's the word sure paul wrote it but it's god's word it isn't paul's epistle it's god's epistle people say well it's just paul wrote this and so you see it at other places and people say well paul was just a man he could make mistakes didn't make mistakes you see how slippery and sly the damnable thing is? It just isn't Paul's epistle. It's God's epistle. And you've got to drive that in your mind. This is not what Paul thought. This is what God thought, and Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it, used his vocabulary, but it's God's word. It's God's epistle. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul what? Look at Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, the what? Servants of whom? Uh -huh. Ephesians. Paul a what? Galatians. Paul a what? <laughs> Second Corinthians. Paul what? First Corinthians. Paul what? Right. Romans. Paul a what? Right. <laughs> Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas. And Timothus is a Greek word, Timothy. There is no reference to servant or apostleship. Why? Because it deals with the gathering together. And in that gathering together, whether you were a servant or an apostle or anything else, doesn't make any difference. Because this is the closing of the final scene. 
this word of God, Paul, Silas, Timothy, all three of them listed and that sent unto the church of the Thessalonians. All the church epistles, even though they are named like unto the Thessalonians, did not stop with the Thessalonians. It just was the first place it was sent to. In other words, God said, address it to the church at Thessalonica and have them to read it. Then after they read it at Thessalonica, it went to Smyrna and Ephesus and all these other places. It's how it circulated. But this tells you exactly who got it first. Perhaps they got it first because they needed it the most at the moment. Thessalonica was a real nice mean town. In Acts 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to where? Where was a synagogue of the Jews? And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures opening and proving that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude and the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, moved with envy, took upon them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and... When they found them not very sick, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. <laughs> and they said, There troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went in the synagogue, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. The believers in Thessalonica needed the hope of the return in order to stand in that wicked city. That's why it went first. They needed it in writing so they could read it just to stand faithful on God's word because the standing faithful gives you the joy of living now and the hope of the eternity of the reward for your faithfulness now. So you got a, a winning ball team now, and you got a winning ball team throughout all eternity. The hope, that's why I believe it was sent first to the church of the Thessalonians. Paul, Silas, Timothy, under the church of the Thessalonians, in, the word in is the word en, en in Greek meaning by. It is by, it's to the church of the Thessalonians, by whom? God the what? I told you that. That's why the title couldn't be right. It isn't the epistle of Paul, it's the epistle of God the Father to the Thessalonians. By God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Again, two entirely different truths. God, the Father, and the Lord, what? 
God the Father is not the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ is not God the Father. God the Father is Father, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. Jesus Christ is not God, and the Father is not the child, the child is not the Father. There may be many characteristics about the child that will tell you about the Father, even to the looks and the actions. But nobody is so stupid in the census world to believe that the father is the child and the child is the father. You've got to be a Christian to believe that stupidity. In the census world, everybody knows better. Every unbeliever knows better. No wonder the so-called Christian church is a laughing stock of people. Somehow or other, you got to get to be a so-called Christian inside the church to get be real stupid. Here again, the greatness of the hope of the return, people. God sets it so beautifully and so perfectly. Two great truths, God the what? And Lord Jesus Christ. The church, the church. The church, which is of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My, how Satan's blinded people's eyes. How he stopped up their ears. They can't see and they can't hear. This is God the Father who is spirit. You can't see spirit, hear it, smell it, taste it, or touch it. Therefore, if it's under the church of the Thessalonians, or Thessalonica by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ it has to be the revealed God the revealed God and the revealed God is the one whom Jesus Christ made known that's why Jesus said he who had seen me has seen the Father you can't see the Spirit what did he mean? very simple if you want to know truth if you want to argue theology Go ahead and argue this stuff. The works that I do, if they, if they don't believe in God, believe in the works I do, then you know God. How is he showing God? By the works he did. He who had seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Didn't mean spiritually, but saw what Jesus Christ did, who always did the Father's will, it says. Therefore, every time Jesus acted, he was making known whom? God. That's why in the Gospels, you just read the Gospels from the point of view of seeing God. That's why the word God here, God the Father, is the revealed God. The revealed God, who is the Father. Of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And from the church epistles, especially Ephesians and Romans, we know, and Colossians too, we know that it's God in Christ in you, the hope of glory. We know that is the new birth. God is your father through his son, Jesus Christ. In the usage of words like Jesus Christ, Jesus is the emphatic word. Christ is subsidiary and explanatory to it. If it's inverted, 
where it says Christ Jesus, then Christ is, is emphatic and Jesus is only subsidiary and explanatory. Jesus Christ, meaning the humbled one, Jesus the humbled one, the Savior, but now exalted as the Messiah, the Christ, the Messianic one, the God sent one. When the three words are used together as they are here in verse one, the supreme emphasis is on Lord, the next emphasis is on Jesus, the third emphasis is on the word Christ. To the church by God the Father, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. That's the emphasis. Colossians says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus. Ephesians says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. This one begins by saying, by God the Father and the Lord. And the word Lord means master. Those people who make him master. You cannot be saved except you confess with your mouth what? Jesus as what? That makes him the master. That makes that humbled or humiliated one the Savior, that makes him whom they spit upon, crucified, laughed at, ridiculed. You have to accept him as being the truth, the master, the Lord. You are not saved if you confess with your mouth Christ as God. You have to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord not Christ as God or Christ as Lord, Jesus, the humiliated one. And the word Lord does not mean he was God. It simply means master. As I've taught you before, it has the same meaning as in English, in England, in Parliament, and in real beautiful culture and so they would say sir john doe it has the same meaning as the word sir in french the same meaning as monsieur are you pronounce that monsieur well same dumb thing <laughs> the german i know much better herr that's right herr h-e-r-r that's the same meaning as the word Lord. How we can get so mixed up that we think the word Lord automatically means God. Just unbelievable. And I mean God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is one of the great erroneous doctrines of mankind today. In Genesis chapter 18 is the first usage and it's singularly significant 
because with some of you I discussed at noon today the record in Galatians about the children of Abraham being the believers. And then from Romans 4, it is real significant that in the context of that great truth is this record in the 18th chapter of Genesis. In verse 6, it says, Abraham hastened in the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. Now I know a little bit about Orientalisms. This is not a TV dinner. How much time do you think was involved here? A little more than 15 minutes, I guarantee. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. He didn't even eat with them. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Oh, you back there in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed <laughs> within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old. What? What she call Abraham? Okay, if Jesus Christ is God, then Abraham was God. Now I know you got two gods, three of them. That's his first usage. Where a man, a husband, is called Lord. And that's why many times a wife in old oriental custom would speak to her, her husband and call him not only Lord, but she'd say, he is my God, because he is the one that gave the orders, the one that set down how things were to be done. In other words, he is my master whom I would serve just like God is the essence. And that's exactly what Thomas said that day when he said, my Lord and my God. Here, Sarah calls Abraham her Lord. Why? Because in that marriage relationship, he was the master. That's the meaning of the words Lord Jesus Christ in Thessalonians 1.1. The master, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace. Boy, what a tremendous thing. Why grace? Because the church of the body needs to be constantly reminded that it is the church of grace. It's the church of the body by grace, lest any man should boast. 
It is the church that could only exist and come into being and be what it is today by grace. And that's why he wrote this divine revelation. The first thing they needed to know to keep the comfort and the greatness of the revelation that God had given when they were born again and they stood and others copped out those that stood, the first thing they had to hear was grace. Still, one of the first things the church needs to be reminded of after they're born again, of course, you've got to be born again to belong to the church or the body. Keep reminding yourself that you got saved by grace. And if you got saved by grace, and I got saved by grace, what makes you so much better in your life than me? None. We both got saved by what? Right. You had three sins. I had 3,000. What's the difference? Both saved by what? Right. Because we were both dead in trespasses and sins without God and without hope. Therefore, people, you just have to keep driving to yourself grace. And if you see grace, you'll stop a lot of criticism of others. When you begin to see the greatness of the grace of God to the church and you see yourself as one member in that body, you'll stop criticizing others. Grace is this thing where you just constantly have to recognize this within yourself. I had been teaching position in Christ. Sure, that's beautiful. But I know people who get around to thinking they have such a position in Christ that they have a right to criticize everybody else and find fault. They have forgotten the first principle of it. That's grace. Your position is Christ is dependent upon God's grace. That's why it's in here. And remember now it's in the, the epistle that deals with the return. Secondly, it says peace. Grace be unto you and what? Peace. Sure is something. To that church of the body, with all those problems they were having in Thessalonica, a real tough area, like downtown Detroit or something. Grace and what? Peace. Peace. Imagine peace. Most times, people are most unpeaceful. I'm thinking Christians. The word says grace and what? Peace. Now, how are you and I going to have peace between each other if I'm always criticizing you, you criticizing me? If I say to you, you're no good bird, and you say to me, well, I don't think you're a good bird either. Where's the peace? Grace, divine favor, and secondly, among the church, peace. Peace peace. You see, if you recognize grace, you'll carry the peace because there is no other way to walk with your brothers and sisters, knowing the return of Christ. Could you have written it any more beautifully? What a tremendous revelation. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is omitted in most texts.
If you want to keep it in, it's okay with me. It's axiomatic from the previous statement. By God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What came by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Grace unto you and what? Axiomatic. The last phrase totally irrelevant to the, the truth of it because it's already stated. By or from God, by God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not necessary. Well, that's the great first verse of God's epistle to the Thessalonians.